At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, episode 193, featuring Matthew Lordo of castingacross.com. Matthew and I worked together a long time ago at the Orvis store in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, and we reconnected at the Somerset and Edison fly fishing shows over the past two years. I thought he'd be a great interview, so please listen to Matthew and go to his website, castingacross.com. I want to mention that it's mid-February now. You can get your orders in for your shad flies early if you get them in soon. You can get those on my website under store. Further, the Project Healing Waters 2 Fly Tournament is coming up in the end of April. If all of the listeners could donate a dollar or $5 or any monetary amount to phwff.org, we can help raise money collectively from this podcast. And on a somber note, one of our listeners passed away last December. You may remember him as the gentleman that brought a bottle of bourbon to me at the TPFR Christmas party two years ago. He's no longer with us, but if he's listening somewhere else, this show is dedicated to you, dude. We, uh, we're still here. We're still doing the podcast. And hopefully, wherever you are, you can listen and enjoy. And with that being said, let's... Take a listen to Matthew and his amazing positive outlook on life and fly fishing. Three, two, one. Matthew, let's just have you introduce yourself. All right. Well, my name is Matthew Lordo, and I am the author and designer at castingacross.com. It's a fly fishing website where I kind of take a holistic look at the sport, look at the people and places and things that make up fly fishing, and um, 
You know, Rob, we uh, met each other many, many moons ago when we worked at Orvis Tyson's Corner back when it was in the old building, which was kind of like the uh, room of requirement. You could only get there if you had to get there. It was in the most inconvenient place in all of Tyson's Corner. But um, currently I'm living in um, Massachusetts, north of Boston. So I am uh, a short throw from the ocean for stripers. I'm not that far from the White Mountains for trout. And I've got all sorts of other stuff uh, nearby, but that's kind of who I am and what I'm doing in a nutshell. What brought you up to Massachusetts? So I am actually vocationally in ministry. I'm a pastor at a church, and um, I was in Pennsylvania before this uh, studying. I've been in a number of different uh, locations, but before I was uh, here in Massachusetts, I was in Pennsylvania and decided to come up here to help uh, a church out. Fantastic. All right, so where did you grow up? Where did where did all this start? Where, where were you a little one? So Chicago is kind of home, um, but I moved to Northern Virginia because my father is in the government, and everybody who's in the government or in defense or anything like that comes to Northern Virginia, as you are well aware. And, <laughs> and so home is, is really Northern Virginia, and... That is where I started fishing really in earnest, kind of in middle school. And then by the time I got to high school, that's when I started fly fishing. And so I was uh, living in Loudoun County and fishing really the kind of the same waters that you fish. So uh, Northern Virginia, the, the Potomac, uh, the other side of the river a little bit into Maryland, and then down into the mountains of Virginia as well. And what was your education? Where did you go after Northern Virginia? So after Northern Virginia, I've well, I've done graduate school a couple different places, but currently I'm uh, going um, for another master's degree because I just have this uh, compulsion to spend money, and um, I'm at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary right now. But I've I've done a, a stint at Penn State for graduate school, Shippensburg, um, and a couple other schools as well. So you're good at moving. I'm great at moving. It's like and I'm great like a, at like a military family. <laughs> but that's my, that's my wife's uh, uh, heritage, so yeah, we uh, we've got that on lockdown. All right. Did you do a lot of fishing when you were in Pennsylvania? Absolutely. So actually, that's that's way the primary reason why we moved to Pennsylvania was for the trout. So I went to grad uh, for uh, undergrad. I was in South Carolina, and my wife is long suffering. She is, you know, today is actually Valentine's Day that we're recording, and so you know, I have to. Uh, commend her for her support of my fly fishing and my writing and all the ridiculous things that, uh, that come with being married to a fly fisherman. So she actually was okay with us moving to Pennsylvania for graduate school with fly fishing being the impetus for being in Carlisle. Um, so <laughs> we lived on the banks of the Yellow Breaches for about five or six years, and I was able to fish the Latorte five days a week. Um, get out on the Susquehanna, get down into Chambersburg and to Newville and fish all those creeks up in the mountains, Junietta, all over there. So for about six years, I was kind of living the life Oil. of the trout bum. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, it, it, but you know what? And you, you really don't know what you got until it's gone. I mean, that was, that was remarkable. My, my office was on the banks of the Latorte, and I lived on the banks of the Yellow Breaches, and it was just uh, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful place to be uh, living. How did you get anything done? Um, you really had to schedule work. I mean, fishing was kind of like uh, waking up and eating and fishing and going to bed. 
and work really had to be scheduled. Um, you had to kind of purposefully not bring rods in the car sometimes. Um, I would take the company car so that I wouldn't have a car full of uh, gear so I actually could, like, go down to Chambersburg and work and then come home as opposed to staying down there in Falling Springs. So, yeah, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a constant struggle, but one that I'm very happy I got to deal with. Does your wife fish? She doesn't. And actually, the last time we fished was on the Yellow Breaches and a really, really busy day, as is prone to happen there in the catch and release section. And uh, the last trout that she caught, I did not come to her rescue quick enough, and so she screamed. Um, but to be honest with you, a 10-inch stocked brown trout can be pretty fearsome. Um, so uh, that, was, that was the end of that. But she's supportive, so I don't know if that's better or worse than having her fish as well, just the fact that she lets me have my thing. Right on. I heard they're going to be doing some construction at the Allenberry stretch. Yeah, they they are. There's a lot going on there, and actually, that's um, you know, that that spot is pretty special to me for a couple of reasons. I caught my very first trout on a fly rod um, right there on the Yellow Breaches by Allenberry, and um, the uh, probably one of the more formative parts of my fly fishing um, life was at the Rivers Conservation and Fly Fishing Youth Camp that Pennsylvania Trout Unlimited and Cumberland Valley Trout Unlimited put on. That was held at the Allenberry for years and years. They had to move it to Messiah College now because they're doing work there at Allenberry. But this program, going over 20 years, has been getting kind of the best and brightest from Pennsylvania and the surrounding areas um, and getting kids to learn not just how to fish but also what a conservation ethic looks like. And so that was super formative for me. So I'm really hoping that the new owners do some good things, both of that property and then to um, take care of what I've heard is the hev most heavily fished stretch of water in all of Pennsylvania, which is saying something because Pennsylvania has more um, river miles than any other state in the um, continental United States. So that's a really heavily pressured uh, stretch. And so they um, that's quite the burden for a, a landowner to, to deal with that. But everything that I've heard says that they're ready to play ball. I know that uh, they're, you know, talking to TCO and that shop there and Cumberland Valley Trout Unlimited and the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. So I'm hoping hoping good things happen for them. There you go. Yeah, I haven't fished up there in too long. It's been a <laughs> way too long since I got out there. <laughs> well, why... You know, when you can catch shad all day and when you've got, you know, um, chicklids and all sorts of, you know, crazy stuff just uh, down the down the street, driving up for stock trout is uh, it's a difficult proposition. True that, yeah. Now, speaking of trout, we, uh, I guess we'll get into brook trout in a bit. Did you have any mentors growing up? You know, I mean, there's definitely men that came alongside me that were, were pretty um, influential, especially later in life when I was actually working as one of the directors of that same camp I went to. There were some men that um, were, were very helpful. But as far as, like, learning fly fishing, um, my friend Alan and I uh, fished together a lot, and we really kind of taught each other where we worked kind of incrementally. One of us would figure out, double haul and the next one would figure out fly tying and then the next one would figure out you know where the um the best spots in the shenandoah were and so we were we we're kind of back and forth you know each doing 50 percent of the work you know one would get the car one would get the job and so alan and i were um fishing buddies in, in the best sense of the, the the word and uh we really kind of mentored menteed each other even though we were um peers and uh, because of that, we uh, we both got to a place where we were 
pretty proficient by the time we were in college, and so that was uh, that was huge. I mean, that's something that you, you don't often think about having a contemporary as a mentor or a peer as a mentor, but if you're both super invested, there's that accountability and there's that drive and, and all those things that can uh, – when there's not a, you know, the, the prototypical, you know, 50-year-old standing there showing you how to cast and, you know, talking to you about, you know, river runs through it and things like that, having somebody there that's just equally as fired up as you can, can really be beneficial. Absolutely. And any moments in fly fishing that really solidified it as, as you being a fly fisherman as, as like, your – I don't want to say – it's I don't – I don't consider fly fishing a hobby. Like more of a, to me, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's just what I am. It's who I am. And it's right, right, right. major moments. Like for me, it was catching that first striped bass on the fly. Mm. That just changed everything for me. Right, right. You know, I, I think that there's a couple things that went into it. I Spending time um, in the Shenandoah, for the very first time and was a was big for me to realize that I was only an hour away from incredibly wild places and we'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about brook trout so as far as like a, a pure fishing experience that was big um, but then also um, really working at Orvis was big for me because I had always been a gearhead even when I was just a um, like in middle school I would pour over Bass Pro Shop catalogs and Cabela's catalogs and the Orvis catalog and Murray's Fly Shop and uh, TCO's catalog and all those catalogs and just really just, I was enamored by the aesthetic of gear, whether it be, a, you know, at that time, you know, just vests and um, the very first large arbor reels were coming out. Um, and so you had these really cool contrasts between this um, older uh, traditional aesthetic and some of the, the newer kind of 21st century um, gear that we were getting in the in the 90s um, and so when I was able to work at Orvis and be able to actually sell that stuff and um, be involved in the industry you know a little bit that was really big for me but that was I realized a conduit for talking to people whether it be coworkers like you or some of the other guys that I worked with or uh, other industry people that would come in whether they be from you know Manchester at Orvis HQ or other companies other fly shops and they would come in or even just customers that were um, that were just avid fly fishermen and realizing that I really enjoyed this kind of one thing that people from every um, race every gender every um, socioeconomic background uh, you know, life experiences and being in Northern Virginia, we had this great diversity of people that we interacted with um, at that shop because at that time it was like us and Angler's Lie and um, that was really it on the Virginia side inside the Beltway. And so everybody had to come to us. So I, we, it was this constant stream of having conversations and hearing people's stories. And so on one side of it, hearing someone's story allowed you to say, well, this is the rod that you want versus this is the rod that you want, these are the boots you want, glasses, flies, whatever. Um, dog beds, you know, fun stuff like that versus something else. But then also, you know, you um, just got to know more about people. And there's folks that I met, you know, all the way back then that I've stayed in contact with and with the website kind of um, getting where it is, people I'm kind of re-getting acquainted with. And so as far as being in the culture and the community of fly fishing, I'd say that um, probably working in the industry, getting my, my foot in the door, um, was as important in some ways as some really formative, uh, like, on-the-stream experiences. I look back at those old Orvis days, and <laughs> there, was some, there was some crazy shenanigans going on back then. But it was, oh. I learned so much. Yeah. 
working mm-hmm. for those those years back in the store. Absolutely. Now, you know, the uh, they say that olfactory memories are the strongest. Um, I don't know if you remember, but every once in a while, I'll be um, like walking in the city and a dog will walk by and I'll smell the dog or I'll be like at a pet store and I'll smell something and it'll take me back to being in the back room at the old Orvis store. The reason being is that we used to use dog shampoo as soap. I don't know if you remember that, but it's like this. this Lavender? Yeah, and it was dog shampoo, which, you know, dog shampoo is good for human hands, I suppose. But I just, whenever I smell that, it takes me back to being in that cramped, um, dark back room at uh, at Orvis. So, yeah, these are the lasting memories that, you know, I I, I reflect on fondly, as it were. (laughs) There's now, like, a 10-story building going in on that spot. I've seen that. still the weird access road to get there. Oh, it is, uh, yeah, it's like the... The, the hidden the hidden store so they they've got that nice big sterile clean store now across uh, Route Seven so they don't know how good they've got it yeah it's big in that new store it's not <laughs> that new it's about seven years old now yeah yeah so uh, what got you into brook trout fishing you know going through your social media it's the pictures of the brookies that usually stand out to me mm. so you know brook trout of course are this very American fish. Um, you know, if you ever read history, you read, um, uh, you know, an ecological history of the, of the country as far as a, um, from a settler's perspective, obviously that's, that's kind of limited in scope, but for most of us, that's, that's where we can trace our, our exposure to the continent to. You know, obviously there's the stripers and the shad and the salmon and some of the fish that are either extirpated or extinct or just diminished just because of overfishing and, and settlement, but once that coastal exposure is is out of the picture, you move west and you've got brook trout for miles and miles and miles and miles. So I've always loved history. I've always loved kind of the sense of place that you get when you spend a significant amount of time somewhere. And if you're fly fishing on the East Coast and you're looking for native fish, then brook trout is going to be the answer for that. And so you have this really cool link to Appalachia when you're fishing for brook trout. And I've, I've always loved that. I love how you can go to really, really wild places, whether it be in the mountains of the Carolinas or through Pennsylvania or into New England, and you're in the middle of nowhere, but then you'll stumble across an old cemetery or you'll stumble across the um, ruins of a settlement. So there's all there's left is a, a chimney and maybe a stone wall. And so there's nothing to do with brook trout there, but the, the constant thing with all of those spots all the way up and down the East Coast is the fact that there's brook trout in the water that flows all around those places. And so certainly the fish have this great aesthetic value of their own. I mean, it's, you know, if you want to get clicks in social media, you put brook trout up. You don't put hatchery steelhead up. You don't put, you know, some uh, half silvery, half copper looking brown turn up. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. There's a reason why people click on Brook Trout. There's a reason why the belts and the hats and the shirts and the patches and the art these days, you know, the Brook Trout have to be included in that. It's, it's as vivid as any aquarium fish, but then there's also such a great differentiation and, and there's some biological, you know, reasons for that. And there's also some, um, you know, ecological reasons for that as you move it up and down the East coast, but the fish themselves are just so attractive. And, um, so you, you have this 
bright and shiny thing swimming in these creeks, um, incredibly fragile, but at the same time incredibly resilient. So you have that, that kind of dichotomy, and then you move over to your surroundings, and there's these incredibly wild places, but at the same time there's trace evidence of people that have come before you. So it's this real cool, holistic picture that, um, you know, I really hope people can appreciate uh, when, they're, when they're in the mountains uh, and when they're, you know, chasing brook trout that they're, they're part of something really bigger than them um, as, it, as it relates to not just fly fishing culture, but just uh, kind of last few hundred years here in the States. I like it. So what, is that what you, you think the, the habitat, the colors, their ferocity just makes them different than other salmonids and, and maybe warm water fishes you would target? Well, I, I think there's a different, you know, it's, it's a different feel. And, I, and there's so much to fly fishing that's about feel. Um, I know there's some days where I just want to be waist deep in shorts and old tennis shoes, you know, throwing poppers for smallmouth. I mean, there's, there's a feel for that, you know. It, it's it's kind of more, it's laid back. It's, it's casual. There's times when I be, want to be out in the salt, you know, going after stripers and blues. And it's, you know, it's aggressive and it's fast and it's, it's you know, powerful. Um, but... You know, brook trout, at least for me, and, and I'm sure this, it changes for everybody, but for me, it's just comfortable. It feels like home. It, it, it's this intermingling of you're hiking to get there. So there's this, this you know, physical component to it. There's the, um, the historical component that I mentioned. And then there is these fish that, by and large, are pretty willing to play ball. Like, no matter where you are, no matter what season it is, it's a, it, they're a constant, you know, and they um, – and they, their colors reflect the change in the seasons, and it, uh, you know, their attitudes kind of change as as they go through their their, um, you know, their biological motions throughout the year. But there's a real comfort to the fact that brook trout are always there, especially up in the mountains and the high gradient streams. Do you prefer to walk from the bottom or walk in from the top? <laughs> so this goes back to me being a poor uh, high school student when I started fishing, and you had to pay to get on Skyline Drive, yep. um, you know. And so that was, like, one more thing that I got to choose between a schmiskit on the drive up and parking at the – oh, yeah, you get the schmiskit and you park at the bottom and you hike uphill for the beginning of the day. You work off your schmiskit. And then you, you hike back down when it's dark and scary. You know, I, I've done it from the top a few times. And obviously, what, you know, what you're talking about is almost exclusive to uh, the Blue Ridge Parkway and Skyline Drive. And not a lot of places, you know, you park at the top and, and hike down. But when it comes to those spots, I've always parked at the bottom and hiked up. Um, I think that you, uh, you can get into easier fishing that way faster. And um, the problem with it is is that, it's just so tempting to start fishing right there at the parking lot. You know, you see those first pools, and everyone fishes them. But uh, you know, you just got to keep uh, keep plugging away up the side of the mountain, and then you can you can find some spots where you get some solitude. Have you ever encountered bears up there? You know, I have not not in the Shenandoahs. I have in the Catskills. Um, but uh, <laughs> my buddy Alan and I, um, the guy I mentioned earlier, we were. Uh, actually doing research for uh, the, the park service um, when we were in high school. It was kind of fun. We got to do some stream surveying. And um, we, uh, we'd we been seeing bear scat left and right. And it was one of those deals where we got uh, all of our research done. 
and this is in, in the winter time, and so it was maybe three o'clock, you know, three thirty. And so after we got our research done on some of these um, these waypoints that the Park Service gave us, we ran back to his truck, we got our gear, and we started uh, running back up to to fish some of these holes that we saw, some of the fish we observed earlier. And so we stayed up way too far in the mountains, way too late. And um, I'm not too uh, ashamed to admit that we held hands walking back down that mountain because it was, uh, you know, every noise you heard, it was probably squirrels and chipmunks, but the fact that we've been seeing bear uh, scat all day and that it, there was monitoring stations for bear activity, um, I didn't have to see one to, uh, to get the full experience. It's like Vern in Stand By Me with the cricket shirt <laughs> and he points the gun. Exactly. <laughs> you sure those weren't Allen scat piles? It, it, it could have been. He, he um, you know, uh, he's not here to defend himself, but uh, he, he was known to to uh, make use of uh, public spaces for such things. Yeah, sometimes you just got to. Mm-hmm. Are there any favorite brook trout streams that you would name? Oh, absolutely. Trout? Of course, because, I mean, they're... They are, you know, if anyone gets angry for spot burning for these, then they've got a very skewed sense of uh, of what's public domain. But I would say the Rapidan is, it's a favorite. I mean, everyone fishes there, but everyone catches trout there. And not to be disparaging if you've had a bad day there, because I've had, you know, or anyone listening, because I've had bad days there. But it's just, it's a big eastern slope Shenandoah stream that is really typical of a river that you see in Maine, and I've fished in rivers that look just like it in Maine and rivers that you look just like it in Georgia um, for brook trout. And so it's kind of a, a crown jewel in that it's close to D.C. Um, it has a lot of conservation work that goes into it, and for some reason, even with all the pressure that it gets, it yields bigger than average brookies. So that the Rapidan is, is a, um, a good kind of archetype of uh, uh, Shenandoah or even a high gradient trout stream um, on the east coast. Now, the uh, kind of polar opposite from that is the Rapid River up in Maine, which it's the most pure brook trout fishing that you can still get in the east coast for a lot of reasons. It's, it's isolated. The dams that exist between the lakes have effectively cut almost all invasive species off and all stocked trout off. Um, there are smallmouth in there, and it still kind of hurts my heart to kill a smallmouth when I catch it, but they're invasive, and they'll just destroy those trout, so um, you got to get them out of there. But the Rapid River produces some huge, huge brookies, and they are um, it's the closest thing you can get to Labrador without going to Labrador, um, in my opinion. And uh, it's big river fishing, but uh, the brook trout behave like brook trout unless you go at the sucker spawn. And the last time I was up there, it was basically like steelhead fishing, both in the um, the size of the fish you're catching. I mean, they weren't they weren't 30 inch brook trout, but they were big brook trout. And the style of fishing, you're just you know flipping, mend, mend, flip, mend, mend, you know, big, heavy, split shot, sucker spawn deals with about 30 of your best friends. Um, so that, it, but it's crazy, and that's, and that's one of the great things about brook trout is that they are so diverse. I mean, the, the weight of some of these rigs I was throwing to catch these big brookies up in Maine, way more than a lot of the brook trout I'd be catching out of the Rapidan. Um, and so, but it's for the same fish. And it's it's really kind of cool to think about uh, a fish that has that sort of um, diversity within its uh, within its 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 own range, but within its uh, biological capabilities. And 
so the Rapidan, the Rapid, and I lose the alliteration on this third one, but another stream for brook trout that I think is really important culturally and then also for anyone who's an aficionado for catching them is Big Spring in Pennsylvania in Newville. And this is not really a brook trout stream anymore, um, but it was uh, back half of a century ago, maybe three generations ago, um, this was the place to catch brook trout in uh, the Mid-Atlantic. Um, it's a spring creek, big, wide, shallow spring creek um, with mill dams on it, and the brook trout were apparently plentiful and apparently um, were just, uh, you know, that, that was the place to go. With the hatchery going in, it really squirreled things up. And You're talking about the ditch. I'm talking about the ditch, yeah. <laughs> And, um, I mean, even when the, when the ditch was a thing, you catch Do you want to explain that whole oh. system, that whole... Yeah. It, it was beyond an anomaly. Mm. That play, I, I was showing my, my daughter pictures of Tom mm. with trout that would go from the real sheet up to the first stripping guide, and they need to be facing downstream or horizontal in the current. It, the, you know, it, it was funny because it was, so, so yeah, so Big Spring. Big Spring is in Newville, Pennsylvania, so if you're heading up I-81, um, it's, uh, you're maybe 20 miles north of the Maryland border um, in a town called Newville, and this spring called Big Spring is named because the spring there is, you guessed it, big, and it, it, it bellows up and immediately goes into a 15 to 20 foot wide stream. And um, there was a hatchery that was placed at the headwaters, which that make, that's incredibly industrious, you know, good thinking. However, um, the effluent from the hatchery was problematic. Now, all of this you can go online and people will argue that there's a thousand other mitigating factors for things being the way they are. So this is the 10,000-foot general view of what happened. So between the hatchery and just the fact that it was a trout stream in an incredibly agricultural area in the 20th century, the fishery went from being a native brook trout fishery to being the, this, like you said, incredibly bizarre place where for about 150, 200 yards, you had this stretch of water where these fish that would average probably 16 to 18 inches, but get well upwards of that, would sit in these just super bizarre currents. And the currents were that way because there was um, natural structure, man-made structure that was put in to divert the water and to shore up the stream bank. Um, there were spring seeps. So as you know, most spring creeks, it's not just one big spring. It's springs, it's a, a major spring and then a whole spring system. And so you have these little um, spring seeps that cause the water to start moving backwards in certain places. So yeah, you walk up to this, this creek and there are 24, 26 inch rainbows and browns that are basically facing each other in the current because the way that they have positioned themselves, they're sitting where they don't have to swim. They can just get fat on crest bugs and dace and sculpins all day, and they could care less what fly you through. So that was then. Today they've done a lot of habitat restoration, and part of that is really, you know, the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission and then some other local um, uh, agencies and some universities and some other folks have really um, started attempting to get the brook trout fishery back to where it was. The rainbows have taken hold and they've actually taken off there. But 
you can still find brook trout that you know there's there's different differences of opinions, but that they are the native strain um, or very little tampering um, with the native strain of brook trout that were in Big Spring, and they spawn different than normal brook trout. They behave differently than normal brook trout. Um, they don't act like mountain stream brook trout. They act like Spring Creek brook trout. And for most of us, we have very little to no experience with that because by the time everybody you know that's our age and a little bit older than us started fishing these spring creeks they were, were overrun by browns or, or rainbows so it's it's not what it was but what it is is still unique and certainly worthwhile for anybody who's into brook trout to check out it's a super pretty drive going oh. along there oh yeah i just do a trip up there soon yeah, absolutely yeah and that there's so many much nutrients coming out of that hatchery when you were talking about the crest bugs, <laughs> you could look down and you think, oh, that's just a stream bed. And then your eyes would focus, and the entire bed was moving crest bugs. Yeah. It was alive. The whole whole stream bank was crawling. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was a, a wholly artificial environment that had really adapted better than, you know, anyone could ever expected. And what it was 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 not good it wasn't healthy for the stream downstream um but it was you know for those of us who got to experience it it's it's something that you're not going to ever see again i don't think which is probably good because it you know it was super unnatural and the and the hatchery wasn't wasn't the best for the stream but um yeah it's it's worth reading about how that place fished in the early part of the 20th century uh, some of the the folks that guys really even up into the 50s and 60s were catching as far as brook trout go uh, in Big Spring are just, uh, I mean, it, it's hard to, to fathom that fish, <laughs> that brookies got that big and that plentiful in uh, South Central Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's like the old Daniel Webster brook trout. Yeah, exactly. Any particular techniques you would use? Mm. Brook trout fishing versus targeting, other, I guess could go away from that sole stream that's spring-fed to mountain yeah. streams. What techniques would you use? to target the brookies? So, you know, I, I love fishing dry flies for brookies and mountain streams. Um, and I would say 90% of the time it's going to be successful, you know. Um, and my preference is to work as much water as possible. These are opportunistic feeders, um, whether they be 3 inches or 13 inches, they're going to probably take the fly on the first cast or be turned off by it. So. I like to cover a lot of water. It, when I'm fishing mountain streams, I rarely stay in the same spot for longer than a few casts. If my first cast is bad, I'll try a second one, and at that point, I'll think, you know what, I've messed this up. And then without disturbing that pool and bothering that fish further, I just kind of go up through. Because I assume that in a healthy stream, there is a fish of some size in every bit of holding water. Um, the places I've catch, caught brook trout and mountain streams just you know, it's flabbergasting. They they will hole up in the smallest of little trickles because all they're looking for is shelter and food. And so if they can get shelter and if they can get food and if they don't have to fight the current of a deep, strong plunge pool, they're going to. You know, and so casting to really any spot where there's, an, you know, three inches of water deep and someplace where a fish can scamper off to left or right, um, no matter if it's on the up against the bank or if it's in the dead center of a stream, um, you just got to work all of those spots and work it like a fan left, right, and then move your, yourself up the stream. And, um, you know, it might sound like a lot of work, 
Um, but it's the best way to cover the most water and get your fly in from the most fish possible. Uh, it is, if you've ever done electroshocking and you've been around folks doing electroshocking on those mountain streams, it is just amazing where the fish will be located and the size of the fish in some of the unlikely spots. So um, I wrote about that recently, just how, you know, you, you, people focus on the punch pools. They focus on those deep aquamarine, churning, beautiful-looking spots. But especially in a stream like the Rapidan or some of those other um, Appalachian Mountain popular bigger rivers, that's where everybody else is fishing. And so there's environmental factors. You know, pe- the, those fish are going to want to get someplace where they're not going to have to fight that strong current, but also not going to have to deal with um, being fished over all the time. So they're going to find their, their way to a little bit of a side channel, and they're going to post up there, and they're going to get the same amount of food without as much work. And it's all a metabolic, you know, equation in the little trout brains, and they're going to, you know, they're going to post up there. So just cover the most water is the best way to do it. So your recent blog post, you sort of had a photo and then bullet, red bullets around <laughs> it. Yeah. Overhanging uh, rhododendrons and side channels. Yeah, it, it takes takes more work. And, that, and that's one of the things. Like, I don't mean to be disparaging to myself or anyone else who just wants to cast in the plunge pools because it makes sense and there's lots of fish in there. But, you know, if you want to up your mountain trout game, particularly your mountain brook trout game, it, it is going to require casting to the places that might, you know, mean a little bit more nuance. It might mean, um, you know, uh, getting yourself into a physical position that uh, isn't isn't as comfortable. <laughs> you might have to kneel down in the water. You might have to crouch. You might have to get in your belly. But if it's a little tiny bow and arrow cast under some rhododendrons or if it is, you know, a downstream drift into something where you're really having to manage your line with your line hand to, to mess with the slack and allow for a decent drift, you know, that's, that's what it takes. That's what separates the 8-inch boys from the 12-inch men, um, you know, brook trout speaking. Uh, and that's, that's, uh, um, that's something that, that I think we don't think about. Because you start catching a bunch of 8-inch fish that are having a great time, and you look back and think, you know, it would have been great to catch a 12 or a 13 or 14-inch brookie. And a lot of those fish aren't in the places that are easy to, to access, um, either river-wise or within a particular river. Um, and so I would say something else, casting-wise, you know, focus on your backcast. We always think about where are we going to place our fly. But on a small, tight stream, if you can master where you put your backcast, whether it be off the side, straight up, if you have a wide loop to avoid stuff that's right above you and right behind you, but you're able to generate enough of that force and energy with a wide loop in the back cast and punch it forward, you know, messing with different back casts as you're practicing or as you're on bigger water will really pay off dividends as you're trying to put your fly into tighter zones uh, on your mountain stream fishing. So let's say you're walking upstream from the bottom, going upstream, mm-hmm. and you are going to come over so you can't see the next hole. What would be the ideal brookie hole where you want to fish? Like if, if you could design your own stream, mm. what, would, what characteristics would that next hole have? So, okay, so, yeah, if, if you fish a mountain stream, you know, what, you know what, what Rob's talking about. So you're coming up and you're, you're, looking, you're basically eye level with the pool that's in front of you. And so you are below a waterfall or a series of, you know, small little, you know, uh, rapids. And you're looking at a pool 
and the water's coming in from the next pool above it or the next uh, run above it. And right there, dead center, is where people are going to want to cast. And there's probably a fish there. But, again, the big fish is probably not going to be there because that's a lot of energy for a big fish to deal with all that current. You start casting at the tail of the pool, and then off to the sides, if you see a little side channel, like um, if the waterfall that is dead in front of you is spilling off to the left or the right and creating kind of some, some riffles that then re-enter that main pool, those are the spots that you'll find fish in because they still have that cover of that deep pool. All they got to do is flick their tail, and they're down, you know, three, four, five feet deep into that big pool. But they're sitting in a few inches of water, and they're getting – all of those bugs, they're getting raked over those riffles. So that's, that's my favorite spot. So you cast to the back of the pool just so you have act, uh, an approach to those fish, and you, you get your fly in front of them. And then I start working the sides of the pool, where the, just above where the water flows into the, the, the deep pool. And then, of course, you finish casting right into that waterfall, that plunge pool, because um, sometimes that is where the big fish is, but there's, there's almost always a fish in a spot like that. So kind of, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, if the water's coming on the left, it's like a clockwise motion where you're casting from 6 o'clock, working your way up around that curve to, to 12. Now, let's say you're coming upstream, mm -hmm. you come to a hole. What kind of hole is, is going to make you be like, oh, forget this, man. I'm walking around this one. <laughs> what, what's the worst case scenario for you that you would skip a hole? Well, you know, just simply for the sake of frustration, it's one with like a downed pine tree with a bunch of crud on it because in my mind I know there's a trout in there, but I also know that there's no way I'm going to get my fly to it. And I know that that's, I mean, that's <laughs> kind of counterintuitive, but – you know there's a fish in there, but your fly is not going to make it out. Um, and you're, that is the perfect spot for a brook trout or any mountain trout to hole up is under some densely, you know, um, packed cover in one of these deep plunge pools because it is getting everything a trout wants. And really, you know, you'd have to be a muskrat or um, a, uh, uh, you know, a uh, – some sort of uh, other critter to get down there and get that trout. So a lot of times I'll see that, I'll weigh my options, but usually I'll, I'll walk right on past. I would say the other one is uh, is a spot that's got worm containers and, uh, you know, snell packages and uh, a couple of bobbers hanging over the top of it. Um, and a lot of times you see those, and they look beautiful, but they're right next to the road or right next to the parking lot. And, you know, you, you don't want your mind to go to the place where you're, thinking bad thoughts about other people. All right, I'm going to interrupt real quick with fish and bugs. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a fungus gnat bouncing against the glass of my aquarium, mm -hmm. and my fish is going nuts. It's swimming <laughs> into the glass and chasing it back and forth. It's chasing the, the, the fungus gnat? Fungus gnat, yeah. Okay. This, this little, I don't know, like a size 24 size bug, and this little minnow is going back and forth along the glass trying to eat it. Hmm. This is the this is the nature red and tooth and claw. Yeah. <laughs> you ever put on goggles and, and try and go into one of those holes and look? You know what? I, I, I haven't, but I've seen folks do it, and it's just, it's amazing. I mean, like, it seems so simple. You're in this mountain trout stream, and it's, you know, you think it's just a hole where there may be some fish, maybe some bugs, but the, the biodiversity, um, the the... You, you get a better perspective at actually how the current in a small pool works. 
Um, there's just so much we don't know about the simplest fishing that as we learn more about it, it just, it's, it's enriching for us, but it also just gives us a greater appreciation of kind of the, the lives of these creatures that we're interacting with. What about your fly selection? Do you go out there with a huge box? Do you match the hatch guide? Do you just like the attractors? <laughs> what's, what's, a, what's a good brook trout fly for you? So I would say that the, you know, a dry is going to, I'm going to use nine out of ten times, and it's got to be bushy. Um, so whether that is some sort of parachute um, or an attractor pattern, it's got to be bushy because that thing is going to get drugged under the water. It's going to be just in a fish's mouth all the time. I mean, that's the approach that you want to take mentally. Um, but uh, I fish a lot of humpies in yellow and in lime green, um, and I fish a lot of royal wolves, um, obviously with the, the red and the, and the green. And those, they're, they're, those two flies are simply, simple tie, um, and they don't have to be pretty. You just got to get, you know, wings are totally unnecessary. When I want to go for a little bit of finesse, you really can't do any better than the Mr. Rapidan. And if, you know, and if you're an East Coast person, you know the Mr. Rapidan that uh, Harry Murray um, kind of came up with. It's just a kind of a, a chimera of a bunch of other different dry fly styles, but it floats like a cork. You can see it from a mile away, and it imitates real bugs. I mean, it's an attractor fly, but it imitates real bugs. And so um, it's, uh, it's a great, more subtle approach to unpressured water when maybe a humpy or a royal wolf will, will freak the, the fish out. Um, so I've got those flies, and then really you get those, and you have a black woolly bugger, and the black woolly bugger with some weight on it will simulate the bait fish, it'll simulate the hugger mites, it'll simulate big stone flies, and on those, um, those creeks, I mean, you've got it all covered. So if you've got... Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Dries in 14 and 16, and you have those lily buggers in, you know, 6, 8, and 10. Then you're, you're golden. Maybe maybe a nymph if you want to get cute, but by and large, uh, dries and and those uh, streamers are are where it's at. Any specialized gear that you take there that you wouldn't fish on another stream? That's more open or a, a bigger stream. You know, I I do, I do like a, a shorter rod. Um, uh, I like this. Maybe I have a, a six nine and a seven foot, uh, a three weight and a four weight, and I think that's perfect. But I. I'm not a huge fan of the super slow um, action rods for this type of fishing. Um, it seems like it's perfect because, you know, you want to feel that little trout, you know, uh, bend your, your, your bamboo or your fiberglass all the way over. Um, but I, I really prefer a medium-fast graphite or one of the faster modern um, fiberglass rods. I had a bamboo rod built that's a little bit faster um, just because – for those casts I was talking about earlier, you want to be able to control your back cast and then pop that, that fly right where you need it um, with very little effort and very, very quickly. I feel like you have a lot more control of your cast with a medium-fast rod than you do with a slower rod. So um, seven-foot medium-fast, either in a quicker, graph, a quicker fiberglass um, or a medium-fast graphite is, uh, is, is my favorite, favorite rod to use. 
Would you say these fish are leader shy and you've got to go really light on your tippet? It depends on the stream. I mean, if you know, you're fishing a stream like or say an early like the Rapidan, then I will go down, you know, 5X. But by and large, my, my little brook trout pack, it's got one spool of, of uh, 4X and a spool of 3X for, for, um, for streamers. But 4X is, is, I mean, these days, a 4X, like a, a, the new Orvis Super Strong 4X, I can't imagine a circumstance where you'd snap that off unless you've got a wind dot, a wind dot in it or it's, it's uh, become, you know, there's something rubbed up against it. But that's, it's so strong, there's really no, no need in going heavier than it for most of your dry fly fishing for brook trout like that. Do you ever lose them up in the trees going too light? Uh, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the problem is that you, you, know, you get hung up and you have a couple of choices. You can either you know, snap it off and, or you can um, go up there and chase it. But if you have a 4X, and again, modern 4X, you can snap down a pretty decent-sized branch and uh, save your fly that way. Yeah, and if y'all haven't read um, Orvis News this week, at least, George Daniel has an article about not leaving broken-off flies in trees, especially mm-hmm. the mop, mop flies he says he sees a lot of. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's the bobber of the, uh, the trout stream. Yeah. All right. Uh, what else about brook trout fishing? Are there any uh, like classic patterns? You know, we've got the Murray's Rapidan down here. What about up north? Is there a specific old-school dry fly that is used? You know, I mean, guys will fish like the bomber-style dries, smaller for brookies, but, uh, you know, that's really, at the end of the day, you're just talking about a big bushy tractor pattern. Um, you know, being in the, the um, close to the Catskills, you know, those wolf flies are uh, are certainly within the, the realm of, uh, of classics. Alright. Now, you mentioned that you have your brook trout pack. Yes. Well, you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a huge fan of being really minimalistic. Um, you know, I I don't want to carry too much stuff. I don't want to be overburdened when I'm doing that kind of fishing. I'm hiking up in the mountains. And so I also um, don't like a bunch of stuff that is going to have all the bells and whistles. I like simple. Um, so I've actually been fishing with a Vitavu uh, tight lines sling pack for quite a few years and uh, Vinavu products are great because they are incredibly simple they are bulletproof and they're built to make fishing like situations like mountain brook trout fishing easy they're built with nothing in the front you're not going to get you know your line or um, anything snagged on your front because it's completely clean but when you spin it around it's basically one big pack um, one big bought to store stuff with a bunch of lash points so you can kind of put stuff where you want. Um, So they've been really designed with flexibility and versatility in mind. Um, So that's that's what I use when I'm on the small rivers is my Vitavu Tightline Deluxe. The the unit of measurement that Vitavu uses is uh, tacky boxes, and you can fit um, four tackies in this, which is way more than you need in this kind of stream, but it kind of gives you an idea of what you can fit. Um, my bigger water, I use a Vitavu B-Sling, which would, you can carry 12 um, tacky boxes. And even as a guide, I can't imagine why one would need to carry that much, but that's enough for enough boxes, headlamp, lunch, spare spool, all that stuff. So, like, 
when I'm on the Delaware, I'm in my beast. When I'm on the, you know, a mountain stream, I'm in the Tightlines Deluxe. And, um, yeah, it's often products put out by, by Vita Vu, made in the United States of America, and um, just uh, kind of embodies that same, you know, ethos of, you know, gear is there to help the experience. It's not about gear. It's not about, um, like I was saying earlier when I was talking about working at Orvis, you know, the gear is important. And getting someone the gear that they need is, is awesome, but ultimately understanding that they have a desire when they want to fish to have a certain experience. You don't want their gear getting in the way of that. You want their gear kind of fading into the background as they're fishing and, and enjoying the experience in the way that they want. And so that's a, a cool thing about the packs that uh, Scott at Vitaboo makes. Yes, and you like the products enough that you go to the shows and represent Vitavu. <laughs> yeah, this uh, I had the the uh, opportunity this last uh, show in Edison um, to work with Scott and uh, some of his guys. Um, Zach from uh, WV Angler was there, and um, we uh, I was able to work the booth um, just to help him out. And he just lives down the road from me in Massachusetts, and um, just again, he's got a really cool story, a really cool. Um, uh, ethic when it comes to why he makes his products the way he does, and that's the kind of thing that I'm I'm all about getting behind. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone makes awesome fly rods, everyone makes great packs, everyone makes good waders, and you know ties decent flies. So what separates you know brand A from brand B? Usually, it's a story. Um, does it resonate with you personally? Does it line up with the way that you think about fly fishing? And um, so, you know, Vita has been that way um, for, for me. And um, so I, I certainly appreciate the way that uh, the care that gets put into what they, they make. So it was pretty cool to uh, work with them and um, doing some other stuff um, with them coming up that I'm really excited about. You made it out of Edison. Did you get the flu? I did not. I, wow. I did not. I, um, I, I, I did drop a Five Guys burger on my lap as I was driving home. Um, but that was, that was the worst thing that happened. But man, I went through so much hand sanitizer. Yeah. Like there's a couple of folks that like cough and then shake your hand or like doing the thing where they're rubbing their nose with their hand and then shake your hand. Um, yeah, one guy was scratching his backside and then shook my hand uh, and, uh, you just smile and then you reach for like a holster. I think uh, I want to talk to Scott about creating, um, like uh, hand sanitizer holsters out yeah, of his your hand in it. Yeah, and just you know, kind of like a quick draw, so that you can do it. Like as they look down to check their phone, you don't have to wait for those germs to start to work their way into your skin. You can just boom, you know, grab it real fast and uh, and do that. That would be that'd be ideal. Uh, that goes to the old idea I had for like a chalk bag <laughs> of, <laughs> of uh, gold bond powder. You could you know it'd be like breading fried chicken. Yeah, if, if, I, if you could use a visual. <laughs> That's perfect. My friend Zach and I were like, yeah, you can just have a drawer in your bathroom. Mm -hmm. It's like for breading fried chicken, but you just kind of squat over it. That, that, see, there's, there's money to be made in these things. You say them, you don't trademark them, then pretty soon you're going to see it somewhere on the Internet. And you all came out with – or Scott has the rod holster, which was reviewed by MidCurrent today. Oh, yeah. And that means people do not have to put their rods on their shoulders oh. any, anymore. Absolutely. There is no excuse. So, you know, usually I'm above the petty things of, of the fly fishing industry and culture, but for some reason, your campaign, your cause for no fly rods on the shoulders has resonated, and I've, I'm in total support. I mean, if there's a sticker, if there's a patch, it'll go, it'll go on all my stuff. Um, 
I, uh, it, it just, like you say, it's contrived. And that's what, you know, I'm, I'm not all about, you know, um, being like extra careful when you're fishing because you're fishing. It's a blood sport. But when you set up your camera and then set up your fly rod, it's like, all right, that was unnecessary. Especially when you see these people with these sealed drag, awesome reels that are meant to be dropped in the water that then they <laughs> take the time to put them on their shoulders. It's just a, it's a little much. If so. I was a rod manufacturer, I would void your warranty if you did that. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it, that's, yeah, that's true. You know, Facebook, you can't get a job because of what you post on Facebook, and you can't get your rod tip repaired because of what you post on Instagram. It's perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. And then speaking of pictures, there are very few pictures of me. Jason and I were just featured in the Washington Post over the weekend, Ooh. and everyone was like, wow, that picture of you. And I'm like, that's, that's Jason. <laughs> They're like, really? I'm like, that's producer Jason. There are no pictures of me because I'm the one with the camera all the time. Everybody everybody needs a hype man, and that just happens to be you in Jason's case. Yeah, there are definitely some people on the Instagram that travel with a professional photographer. And, hey, more more power to them. My, my professional photographer is basically, you know, two and a half feet away from me as I as I try to fumble a selfie if uh, if I ever feel so inclined. Um, All right. Well, that covers Vitavu. Let's talk about um, sort of. I don't want to make this too long. You mm. probably have something to do today. I've got to go pick up business cards at nice. Staples. Nice. Yeah. So what? You know, fly fishing to you. It, it's it's not just the catching of the fish. What else in your angling do you seek out? Well, and I think that I know you're you're a religious person too. Yeah. Is there? A connection to spirituality through fly fishing for you? Well, I, absolutely, and and but but it's not through like my my time on the water gets me closer to God. I mean that that's certainly true, and and I absolutely appreciate that, and just you know, love being creation. You know, I, I that that is probably the biggest driving force more than the science, more than the politics. My desire to be involved in conservation is because I believe we've been given this awesome planet to enjoy and to take care of not to pillage not to do it as we see fit but to enjoy and take care of and so um yeah so that 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 certainly drives me in that respect but i think deeper than that it's the people that i that i talk with the people i spend time with you know i can you know obviously i have my my religious my political my angling um preferences um, but there are folks that have very, very different preferences in all those things, but we can break bread together, fish together, talk together with the same point of contact. And I get to hear their stories. And so for me, that is, you know, that's really the most beneficial thing um, that comes out of fly fishing. I think that gives it, like, meaning and purpose at a, at a deeper level is that you get to know people, um, whether it be at, like, um, you know, the uh, – um, I didn't get to go to a lot of them when I was in Virginia, but, you know, like the beer ties at Vitavu, we're doing a fly a vice night now. I know a lot of TU chapters do it. You know, everyone, everyone has something like that. But to be able to spend time with people, um, I think that's huge because we all have this one thing where we come from our crazy, different, diverse backgrounds to focus in on chasing fish. And so it's a really cool um, tethering point that is drawing in a much wider crowd than, say, my experience um, at church or, you know, if you are going to a rally for something at D.C. or you're on a Facebook group yelling about something. It, it, rally for no rods on shoulders. I, 
<laughs> the the half dozen man march, but it's growing. It's growing. It's growing. The movement is swelling. So yeah, but yeah, people people are absolutely an important part of it, and that's why one of my taglines for the website is you know the people, places, and things that go into catching fish. People, I mean, they matter. And honestly, I'm not sure I can justify the amount of time that I put into this kind of, you know, side thing of mine of the website and of fishing and all that if I couldn't justify it by the relationships that I have with, with my friends and just the folks that I talk with in, in fly fishing. Well, let's get into the website. We haven't talked yeah. much about casting across, and I've got the sticker now on my tying, my travel tying kit. Nice. Yeah, so how long have you been doing the blog? So Casting Across is about, th it's almost three years old now. Um, and really it comes out of, again, you know, mentioning, you know, what I do vocationally as a pastor. When I write for work, when I write for school, I feel this real overwhelming burden for precision. Because what I'm writing about, you know, I, I firmly believe is like the most important stuff that anyone can think about, that anybody can occupy their time with. And I love it. But it, it does, there's this burden and this weight to get things right and to get things to precise and to represent my source material accurately. So I wanted a creative outlet to write about something else that I enjoy where I have a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more freedom, and a little bit, you know, I can integrate a lot more humor into it. And so that's really where Casting Across came from. And actually, you know, you get to uh, the issue of inspirations and I'd say that listening to your podcast many, many moons ago was one of the uh, one of the things that made me think like, you know what, people do appreciate a more holistic view of fly fishing. They don't need just tips and tricks, but they're cool with talking about um, fly shops. They want to hear about the food that someone ate when they were on a fishing trip. You know, they 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 like the anecdotes. So it's it's that very. Um, holistic look at the at the sport. Sometimes I do write about tips and tricks, like the article that you mentioned. Sometimes it is just pointing I, I think one of my one of my jobs in with Casting Cross is to point people in lots of different directions and, and direct them to other folks' work, whether it be books or podcasts or um, websites or products and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's just a it's a forum for a really uh, I see myself kind of straddling the line between just being an everyday fly fisherman and being kind of in the industry. And so that's kind of the voice that, that I try to bring. Do you have a bucket list of places that you want to hit up or any species you haven't fished for? Put those into the website? Oh, you know, the, um, the, the, <laughs> the one thing that I, if I, someone just gave me a, a blank check today, I would book a trip for time in Mongolia. Um, reason being, I... Um, I have been over there. Not, not. Is that your R2 unit? <laughs> that was my my phone that I was supposed to mute, and I totally forgot to mute. Um, but yeah, Taiman in Mongolia. I've been in Kazakhstan, and I've seen the the, the terrain, and I've um, seen the, um, the 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 environment there, and then obviously just seeing the, the pictures of the fish and just how unique it is. Um, I would love to do that. Um, it's just a. It's you can only do it there. So it is, is, is very unique. Now, more realistically, I'd love to get up, you know, loving brook trout. I'd love to get up to Labrador and chase, chase brookies. You know, I, I, I talked and talked and talked and talked the ears off of the guys that were doing the Labrador trips at the shows this, uh, this winter. Um, I think that'd be cool. And it's, it's a scant 18-hour uh, drive from where I'm in Boston. So we'll see. Maybe just knock that out some weekend soon. 
the kids aren't old enough to drive yet. Uh, no, they are five, three, and one. So we do brook trout in the streams that are about an hour away, and even then we're really pushing pushing our luck. But they do it, and they enjoy it, so that's good. And, and they're all are – they, are they into it? Do they like fishing? Yeah, actually, we've got a local a local uh, um, fly shop that's doing a show this weekend, um, and they are pumped. It is on the calendar. They've got their clothes picked out. They they know what they're doing. They have picked out flannels, and they have picked out cowboy boots, so they know exactly how you're supposed to dress when you go to a fly fishing show. Um, yeah, they're psyched. They're looking forward to it. They they both have little Vita Vu, little bugger packs, um, and the, the five-year-old and the three-year-old. And uh, so, yeah, they, uh, they're they totally into it. The five-year-old can cast very, very well, um, and the three-year-old uh, is really brave, so he's the one i got to watch out for. Do you have them working for you yet, cleaning your corks? <laughs> you know, that's, that's a good idea. They, they do know how to use the dust buster, so when tying gets out of hand, um, I can say, hey, whoever can get the most uh, material off the floor, you know, they, they win. Yes, I only have one kid, so there's no competition with anyone else. <laughs> That's the key. You got to pit them against each other. Build, yeah. build a bond. So, how long has the beard been growing out? Oh, you know, it. <laughs> I went to a, a conference in uh, in Lynchburg, Virginia. It was uh, Thanksgiving before last, and I was teaching at a private school at that point in time. And uh, I was usually I was pretty clean cut. And there's the conference, and then there was Thanksgiving. So it was about like ten days. And I came back, and I have not looked back uh, ever since. So I've, you, you trim it. You don't want to look too wild. You've got to maintain some level of looking professional. But, uh, but the, the thing is, the, the beard gets a lot of smiles. You, know, you never see anybody look disgusted by it. Maybe they do behind my back, but you know, I think people just enjoy beards. The, uh, where you don't see that is at the fly fishing show because, I mean, my beard's pretty big, but at the sh- You're no Dan Davala. Exactly. At the show, I am a you know, mere Padawan. Okay in the eyes of a bunch of Jedi masters. So that's, that's the beard story, but yeah, it's all about, um, it's not, it's not an expression of my own personal masculinity or anything too, you know, weird like that, but it's just, there's a lot of cool men throughout history that have beards. So I I consider myself uh, lucky to be in their, in their company. Well, they didn't have razors back in the day. (laughs) I don't know what these, I can't imagine how you used to deal with fingernails, you know, five, thousand years ago I, uh, yeah and how did you cut your fly line or your your, your tippet if you couldn't buy 99 cent uh nail clippers you know you, yeah their teeth probably weren't strong enough no though they're wooden teeth it's hard to snip uh silk or cat gut with uh, wooden teeth oh there was a guy on reddit last week that's making knives out of wood i think he's japanese hmm. he can cut steak and carrots Pretty cool. That's impressive. It can, yeah. Does it come with a a, a guarantee like uh, what's it called, um, Cutco Ginsu? or Ginsu? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So you, you uh, obviously listen to this podcast. You want to plug the other other ones you got your friends with? Yeah. So um, obviously, I would say the, the two podcasts that I I listen to a lot because I'm on the road a lot um, are within fly fishing are yours. And um, two guys in the river, uh, Dave Getz and Steve Mathewson. It's it's cool because um, they're certainly not your competition because it's like two different animals, you know. Um, theirs is short and quick, and it's you know 20 minutes, and it's usually just them. I've been on a few times. Um, some other guys have as well, and so it's it's very different. It's and it's it comes out weekly. It's something that is just a it's a perfect entry point for for beginners. So if 
I mean, admittedly, you know, in the last, you know, hour that you and I have been talking, I've thrown terms out there that to you and I are totally normal, but for somebody who's just getting into the sport, they'd have to like go back, rewind, write it down, Google it, figure it out. Uh, Steve and Dave and two guys do an excellent job of making a easy access point for the sport. So they, they do a good job with that. But, uh, yeah. Imagine someone in Kansas listening, and, and they're like, what's a Smithskin? <laughs> Isn't that awful? There's somebody out there who doesn't, you know, you know, like the do they know it's Smithskits after all or whatever. We could write a, a song about that, about feeding the world with Smithskits. And I just had this conversation with my clients on Saturday. They were very amazed there are no sheets in Fairfax County. Yeah, well, is, is rest in Fairfax? Yeah, there's no sheets there. Oh, no, they just built one is in, in uh, Herndon. Oh, really? It might be a Sterling address still. It's it's close to uh, to where my father-in-law works, but it's off. Yeah, it's it's you're getting there. Just have, yeah, pa- have patience. A, there's a Cracker Barrel now over off 28. This, this is right across the street from Cracker Barrel. Yeah, if Cracker Barrel ever had a buffet, I would never leave. Oh my goodness, the amount of biscuits and and gravy and oh man, it'd be, be like Homer Simpson. He's not a man. He's a beast. <laughs> All right, where can we find you online? So the website is castingacross.com, like casting across a stream or something like that. Um, And then on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, I'm at castingacross, one word. Um, So that's where where you'll find me. All right. Did we cover everything we were going to talk about? I think so. I think think that's that's all the main stuff. I would just encourage folks to, um, you know, continue to, to read. You know, that's one of the things, obviously, I primarily I write. I don't take a ton of pictures. The pictures are there really for, you know, getting people in. But um, we're, you know, history and reading are integral parts of our sport. And um, so I, I just, it's awesome to see, like, at the fly show, uh, as busy as the, the book distributors are, um, and just uh, folks still read, even when it's just a blog. It's, it's awesome because that's where... I feel like the best ideas are getting shared and, um, you know, folks are able to hear other people's stories. So, yeah, that's... Uh, Fly fishing would not be the same without Al Gore's internet. Mm, thank you, Al Gore. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for taking the time out of today. Absolutely. And have fun this weekend at the shop with the kids. Oh, thanks, Rob. You have a good one and enjoy uh, the uh, these last weeks in preparation for Shadness Madness. Yeah, I've got... Uh, I've only tied 50 shad flies today. I'll do Ooh. 150 if I can. Ooh, make sure you use that. What's the green stuff for your fingers? The, uh, oh, man, the, the hand balm, the hand cream. Yeah. yeah. They also they sell the blue one, which is the same ingredients for the foot. Mm, yeah. It's the same label, just once, I don't know. Yeah, I definitely like that stuff. That, that's, that's, I need that for fly time because I've got nasty, you know, manual labor hands. So. Right. All right. Very cool. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
production of Freestone Media at freestone-media.com. wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.